Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode is my presentation on the subject of Book of Mormon numerology. One of my dear friends is a fellow who happens to be a professor of classics at Florida State University. His name is Trevor Luke. Professor Luke has a deep and abiding interest in the subject, not only of classics, but also in the subject of Western esotericism, and specifically how Western esotericism is reflected in, and to some degree, responsible for, and adopted by, and incorporated in, the early Mormonism, and even pre-Mormonism of Joseph Smith's early days. Professor Luke is not the only individual with this interest in Western esotericism as it impacts and is reflected in Mormonism, but there are other similarly situated scholars who have this interest. They have formed a group called the Mormonism and Western Esotericism Group. Professor Luke asked me to give a presentation to this group. I could think of nothing that might be of better interest or a better fit for this group and this presentation than the research I did on the subject of ancient Hebrew numerology as it is reflected in the Book of Mormon. And so this is the presentation that I gave to that group on the evening of December 14th, 2021. I personally think that by far the most interesting part of the discussion was after my presentation was concluded and the scholars began asking questions and seeing connections of their own. I had a wonderful time presenting to this group and I hope that you will enjoy listening to this presentation. So let's well, get good. underway. Uh, we've given people a few minutes and I, I will keep admitting people as they arrive. I'm sure we'll have some more, but uh, we have lots of wisdom to imbibe this evening. <laughs> I thought it was bullshit. Oh. That's not what I'm imbibing. Okay. Okay. But if you want to use any of this material, uh, of course, uh, you are welcome to RFM. Uh, you hold the rights to this recording that you're making, and free to use. You're free to use it as you will. But let's get underway. So, welcome everybody. I'm going to talk a little bit about our group, and then introduce introduce our august and distinguished speaker. Uh, uh, a man of growing fame in, in the Mormon community um, with influence reaching far beyond that of President Nelson within the uh, Intermountain West, uh, sending people into palpitations and, uh, I don't know, faints in, in the church office building. <laughs> You've really practiced this introduction, haven't you? I didn't. <laughs> This is my sad, uh, my, my sad attempt at um, improvisation. Okay, so officially, officially, here we're going to begin. Founded August 7th, 2020, the Working Group on Mormonism and Western Esotericism aims to promote the study of Mormonism within the context of the Western esoteric tradition, both within academia and among the wider public. Reaching back to Mediterranean antiquity, the Western esoteric tradition here refers to those individuals, groups, and cultural phenomena concerned with the search for higher knowledge, not infrequently in conjunction with the performance of secret rituals that might lead the initiate ultimately to commu communion with higher realms of existence or even divinization of the self. 
drawing from roots in the Radical Reformation, Freemasonry, and magical practices, early Mormonism represents a synthesis of various strains of esotericism, and thus cannot be fully understood without taking proper account of the esoteric aspects of its origins. To that end, the Working Group on Mormonism and Western Esotericism holds conferences and hosts speakers, as well as participating in the conferences of other organizations such as Sunstone, in order to make the case for the great value of studying Mormonism through the lens of Western Esotericism. Tonight, we are fortunate to host Radio Free Mormon, currently one of the most significant podcasters in the Mormon community. Appearing both solo and with Bill Reel on Mormonism Live. Most recently, he spoke at Thrive. A member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints for many decades, Radio Free Mormon is a true scholar and historian of Mormonism, has published articles on topics of Mormon history, doctrine, and scripture. He is a masterful debater, a marvelous raconteur, and an inexhaustible source of learning and wit. Tonight, Radio Free Mormon will share with us his research on one of the many topics he has illuminated with new insights and discoveries, Hebrew numerology in the Book of Mormon. I now turn the time over to Radio Free Mormon. Well, thank you so much for that introduction, Professor Luke. It's great to be here. You know, I'm, I'm very nervous to be here and presenting before a bunch of scholars like you people, because I do not consider myself to be fit to black your boots, but I'll do my best. OK, so we're talking about Hebrew numerology in the Book of Mormon. I have to say three things first. First thing is this. I don't think this research would ever have occurred. Actually, I know this research would never have occurred without Don Bradley. Is Don Bradley among us tonight? I haven't seen him yet. He's out, he's probably out protesting with a sign in front of the building. The deal, <laughs> no, Don Bradley, uh, he was a co-contributor on this research with me. And this has been almost 10 years ago now, but I cannot even think to begin talking about the subject without talking about Don Bradley and the huge, huge influence he was on this research. I don't think it ever would have happened without him and it wouldn't have happened as well without him. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, is that whenever we're talking about numerology in any context and talking about the presence of numerology in a text like the Book of Mormon, it is fraught with difficulties and perils. And one of the first things is, is that as soon as you're looking for certain numbers, you're going to see them. It's like the old story about the red Volkswagen Beetle on the highway. You don't see any until somebody mentions it and then you see them everywhere. So that's something that uh, I have tried to guard against. Any story, any narrative that's going to involve uh, numbers of people, numbers of days, everything's going to be numbers. And some of them are going to fit the paradigm you're looking for, and others are not going to fit the paradigm you're looking for. And typically what ends up happening is you focus on the ones that fit and you ignore all the rest. And you end up doing what's I think commonly referred to as Texas sharpshooter. Texas sharpshooter fallacy. So I've tried to guard against that. And I will say, uh, at least on one occasion that I remember, and I know there's more that I don't remember, Don Bradley served to keep me honest in that regard. And I appreciate him for that. And I think the result is much better for that. Now, the third thing has to do with Hebrew numerology in the Book of Mormon. It is, I believe, accurately titled, but it also has to be added that Hebrews weren't the only ancient culture interested 
in numerology and not the only uh, culture that used it. So, and a lot of cultures use similar numbers to the Hebrews. They were not hermetically sealed from other cultures. So what I'm saying could apply to other cultures, but I think the Hebrew has specific relevance here, especially because of Joseph Smith's familiarity with the Bible, where it shows up there a great deal. So having said all that, let me present um, the overview, and the overview is going to be the whole thing, okay? The overview of this subject, and I'll present the evidence in front of you and let you make your own decision. I think the evidence is persuasive that actually there is intentionality to the use of ancient numerology forms in the Book of Mormon. So here we start, okay? First off, the number seven is what we're going to be talking about. The number seven is so popular. It's even in our culture today. We think about lucky number seven. Seven is a number of special significance, not as much today, I think, as it used to be among the ancients. And I have a short list of seven being used in the Bible in symbolic ways. Number one, the creation account. Let's start at the very beginning. The creation account, a very good place to start. It's seven days, right? Genesis chapter two, verse three. And let me talk about the number seven because the number seven is important for a very specific reason, I believe. And it's because it's the combination of two numbers, which is three and which is four. All right. Three plus four equals seven. So from ancient times, it looks like four was associated with the earth. And we see that with the four corners of the earth when it was believed to be flat and square like the four pillars on which the earth stood, the four cardinal directions, the four winds, you get the idea. That's a pretty easy one for people to grasp as to why four was associated with the earth. Three, on the other hand, was associated with the heavens. So you've got four for the earth, three for the heavens. And I believe there's also a masculine and feminine component to both of those, which we're not going to get into at this point. I'm sure Carrie Schertz will be covering that in an upcoming Backyard Professor video. So three plus four equals seven. And we started on that list with the creation account. The creation account is seven days. And when you think about it, some ancient Hebrew sat down at some point to write the creation account. I don't think it was Moses, but it was somebody, and they were steeped in this culture. And when an ancient Hebrew is going to sit down and he's going to write an account of the creation of all things in heaven, three, and earth, four, then it would really only be expected. In fact, it's almost ineluctable that the author is going to talk about the creation of all things in heaven and earth in a seven day period or a seven period, period, creation periods, right? It, it would be strange if it were any other way, actually. But that's number one. The creation count is seven days. Number two, the sabbatical year is every seventh year. These are things that are not a surprise to anyone, I expect. Number three, God commanded Moses to displace seven nations from Canaan. That may not be as commonly known. That's Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse one. Uh, number four, Elisha, not Elijah, but Elisha, commanded Naaman. Oh, we get this story a lot in the LDS church, at least we used to. He commanded Naaman to wash seven times in the Jordan River to be cured of his leprosy. Number five, seven baskets of surplus food are left after the multiplication of loaves in Matthew chapter 15. We've now gone into the New Testament from the Old Testament, for those of you keeping track. Number six, Peter asks if he should forgive seven times. 
Okay. And he's really not talking. Maybe he's talking literally. I'm not sure, but this is supposed to be a fullness of times, a completeness of times, as opposed to just the number seven. And the seventh one in the list is that in the book of Revelation, chapter one, verse four, there are, of course, seven churches that are addressed in that book. So that's my first list of seven usages of seven in symbolic ways in the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, let's go to the Book of Mormon for a separate list, because seven also ends up being used symbolically in the Book of Mormon. Number one, there are, you remember, of course, that Nephi has a heck of a time with his older brothers, Laman and Lemuel, and they're always going back and forth, and usually Laman and Lemuel get the upper hand, and then Nephi gets uh, miraculously preserved by divine intervention. But if you count them, and I have, but I won't go into that detail here. Maybe if there's a question, if someone cares about it later on, I will refer you to where it is uh, listed. But there are actually seven rebellions by Laman and Lemuel. They don't necessarily have to be against Nephi, but there are seven rebellions by Laman and Lemuel as recorded in the book of First Nephi. Number two, there are seven churches specifically noted in the land of Zarahemla in Mosiah 25, 33. There are seven converted Lamanite cities and lands listed in Alma 23, 7 through 13. By the way, let me just interpose this for a second, is that there are sometimes in the text, both of the Book of Mormon and the Bible, where it comes out and it tells you, this is the number seven. There are seven creation periods, for instance. There are uh, seven years for every sabbatical year, is every seven years. So it comes out and it tells you the number. There are other places in the scriptures and in the ancient texts where it doesn't tell you it's seven. You have to count it yourself. It's not going to come out and tell you this is seven, but it will give you a list of seven. And those are referred to in the literature sometimes as latent heptads. The latent, of course, being it's not coming out and hitting you over the head with it. You've got to count it yourself. And the heptad being a grouping of seven. So where were we? I think we're down to number three. Oh, by the way, number two on Book of Mormon, seven churches are noted in the land of Zarahemla. I believe that that actually comes out and says there's seven churches. Number three, where it says there's seven converted Lamanite cities and lands are listed in Alma 23, verses 7 through 13. That one is a latent heptad. And actually, it was those two things, the seven churches noted in the land of Zarahemla, and then the seven converted Lamanite cities and lands are listed in Alma 23, verses 7 through 13. That was actually the germ of this entire paper and all this research was I had observed that and I thought that was kind of interesting and maybe it meant something, but it was that's all it was until I brought it up. Don Bradley thought it was interesting and he fanned the flames and made his own contributions, as I've mentioned. Okay, number four in my Book of Mormon list, the Nephite monetary system. Remember Alma chapter 11? The Nephite monetary system is based on the number seven. Number five, uh, there are seven Lamanites who are killed by Ammon at the waters of Sebus in Alma 18. There are seven deadly sins of the Nephites that are listed by Mormon in Alma 50, verse 21, another latent heptad. And there are seven missionary companions taken by Alma to the Zoramites on that mission to the Zoramites, as recorded in Alma 31. So there is my brief list of seven being used in the Book of Mormon in symbolic ways. So for those of you paying attention, I hope I haven't lost you yet. You probably saw what I did there. What I did was I listed seven usages from the Bible, seven from the Book of Mormon, and I ended up listing in total 14 
such examples. Two lists of seven. Why did I make two lists? Well, the reason I did that was to illustrate that multiples of seven are frequently used to enhance the symbolism of the number seven. Doubling seven to 14 is the numerological equivalent of what we would do when we are maybe writing something in all caps or underscoring something that we're writing or bold facing for additional significance. So they could double it or they could multiply it by different numbers. We'll see a few of those here in a second. So now let's go to multiples of seven in the Bible because we see this there as well. And this is gonna be another list of seven. Um, so the first one in this list is Jacob served Laban seven years for Leah and then another seven years for Rachel. Genesis chapter 29. Number two, Joseph prophesied seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine, Genesis 41. Number three, the Israelites uh, under Joshua, they circled Jericho seven times on the seventh day in order for the walls to come falling down. Number four, Passover is held on the 14th day of the first month. So Passover being held on the 14th day, I think probably has symbolic significance there. Once again, this might be squishy. I'm not positive, but I give it as an example. Number five, Solomon has a feast for seven days and seven days. That's actually the quote from 1 Kings 8, verse 65. Solomon has a feast for, quote, seven days and seven days, even 14 days, end of quote, is what it says there. So they're really trying to make it clear, I think, what they're doing with that symbolism. Number six, God tells Elisha, a remnant of 7,000 faithful Israelites remain. That's in 1 Kings 19. Now, this is a situation where we don't have seven doubled, but we have seven multiplied by 1,000 to increase its symbolic significance. Um, number seven, the last one on the list here, Jesus tells Peter, remember we had on the previous list that Peter asks if he should forgive seven times and Jesus's response, which is very famous, Jesus says, no, Peter, you have to forgive 70 times seven. And once again, I don't think that Jesus is saying 490 times if my math is right. I mean, I went into law because I stink at math, but I think that's the answer. 70 times seven, what he's talking about is underscoring the completeness and absoluteness of forgiveness that he has to give basically as many times as it's asked. And I don't think that's a, a very unusual understanding of that particular passage. So, there's the seven examples there. Now I want to get into very briefly the symbolic genealogy of Jesus, because there are two gospels, as you know, that give a genealogy of Jesus. It's Mark and it's Luke, excuse me, it's Matthew and it's Luke. And we're going to talk about Matthew specifically because what Matthew does is very, very interesting. What he does is he does three groups of 14 and he extends it back to David and no Abraham before David. It goes from Abraham to David is 14 generations and he lists them all. And that would be, I think it's Matthew chapter one. Wait, I have it right here. Yeah, it's Matthew chapter one. It's Luke who does it a little bit later in his gospel. So from Abraham to David is 14 generations from David to the destruction of the temple by Babylon 
is another 14 generations. And then from the destruction of Babylon to Jesus is the third set of 14 generations. The thing about Matthew's genealogy, which has long been recognized, I think, is that it is clearly artificial. In other words, Matthew is not really setting forth everybody in this list of genealogy going back to Abraham. What he's really doing is he is using a creative method to arrive at what he wants to have, which is these three sets of 14. In Matthew's, for example, in Matthew's third list of 14, between the fall of um, Jerusalem to the Babylonians and Jesus, he actually only lists 13 generations. But the author of Matthew insists that there are 14. If you go back and actually count them, there's 13. It's 14, 14, and 13. But the author is so intent on making it 14 that he'll call 13, 14 anyway, just to make his point. Additionally, um, it turns out that Matthew left out some names in the 14 generations from David to the Babylonian disaster. So that would be the second set of 14. This is just an example. In uh, chapter 1, verse 8 of Matthew, Matthew indicates that Joram is the father of Uzziah. But we know from 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, that Joram was not Uzziah's father, but was actually, at least according to that record, his great-great-grandfather. In other words, Matthew has dropped three generations from the genealogy. Why? The answer should be getting obvious by now. If he included all the generations, he would not be able to claim that something significant happened at every 14th generation, because this is one of the main points he's making. Every 14 generations, something very important happens, and he proves it from Abraham to David and from David to the Babylonian destruction. Well, it's been 14 generations since then, and something very important is supposed to happen, and that important thing is Jesus. That's the point he's trying to make there, I think. So, what Matthew's doing is he's teaching that God is in control of the history of Israel. He's teaching that every 14th generation, something of immense significance happens. And Matthew is consciously constructing his narrative to teach something much more important than a dryly accurate genealogy. He's trying to teach something with symbolic usage of numbers. And his, excuse me, hang on just a second here. Sorry, just coughed. I'm, I get pretty good at using the mute button. So Matthew's teaching this more profound truth than simple accuracy. Matthew is teaching the deep truth of God, and he's using numerology to do it. And one of the things that's important, and it will be very important in the second half of this uh, discussion, is this very, very thing, which we can find an example of here right in Matthew, which is we know from looking at the Old Testament text, which Matthew was probably using in order to construct his genealogy, that there is something that is historically accurate. It's the real world. I'll put that in somewhat air quotes. But the real world has a different genealogy that isn't going to make the point that Matthew wants to make. So what he's doing is he's superimposing upon the real world a different format and changing it up a bit, specifically in order to arrive at the symbolically significant number that he wants to arrive at. So what this shows is authorial intent and creativity. It didn't happen by accident. This is something that the author of Matthew planned and worked to have it come out the way he wanted. 
And it's rare that we can find this in the scriptures because in order to find this, what we have to have is two things. We have to have the actual historical record in the scriptures. And we also have to have an account of someone monkeying with it in order to make it numerologically significant and make it a different number. And as you can imagine, that probably doesn't happen an awful lot. We might have certain times where uh, something's historical and we don't have anybody changing it to make it numerologically significant. Or we might have something that maybe is numerologically significant, but nobody, there's no place where we can look at what the actual history was. And that's one of those things that I talked about earlier. Uh, even the, the, uh, the, account, the creation account, right? We don't have anybody saying, well, it was actually this period of, of years, millions of years. But all we have is what is very apparently the symbolically created account without something in the real world in the scriptures to compare it with, to see how it's being used by the author to make it significant. And this is something, back to Matthew's genealogy, this is a quote from Bart Ehrman. This was from his book, Jesus Interrupted, pages 57 and 58, and he noted the same thing. Um, what he said was, Matthew's genealogy of Jesus stresses the numerological significance of Jesus's ancestry. From Abraham to David, Israel's greatest king, there were 14 generations. This is still quoting from Ehrman. From David to the destruction of Judah by the Babylonians, Israel's greatest disaster, there were 14 generations. And from the Babylonian disaster to the birth of Jesus, 14 generations. 14, 14, and 14, Dr. Ehrman says, it is almost as if God had planned it this way. In fact, for Matthew, he had. After every 14 generations, an enormously significant event occurs. This must mean that Jesus, the 14th generation, is someone of very great importance to God. Um, I will insert here, parenthetically, that in the other gospel account, Luke, that mentions the genealogy of Jesus, he does it differently. He doesn't go back to Abraham. He goes all the way back to God through Adam. And I set myself down and counted the generations. And it may be more than coincidence that the author of Luke comes up with 77 generations between Jesus and God. And God being the father of Adam, right? As it's said there in that genealogy. Okay. So having set that groundwork, um, by the way, can I mention something else? We all know that 12 is a very important number in ancient Hebrew uh, numerology. There's 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, maybe in some sense uh, based on that or deriving from that and the 12 princes of each tribe, one prince for each tribe. In fact, we, we understand at least in one of the gospels that the apostles were thought to be the ones who would judge the 12 tribes of Israel. So 12 is a very important number throughout. And although I've never seen it in my research, I'm sure it's out there somewhere. I doubt that I'm the first one to come up with this idea. I think 12 is important to uh, the ancient Hebrews for the same reason that seven is. But whereas seven is three plus four, 12 is three times four or four times three. And I think that it's quite possible that that's why 12 becomes such an important number to the ancient Hebrews, simply multiplying instead of adding. Okay, so let's look to the book of Alma. Something similar happens with the construction of the book of Alma. There are three sets of 14 years that the book seems to be structured around. The first 14 years 
cover Alma's activities among the Nephites. You remember right at the beginning of Alma, uh, Alma says, I'm tired of being um, the chief judge. I'm just going to restrict my, my duties to be high priest. And he goes off around to the different churches, the seven churches amongst the Nephites. And he preaches there with, with one degree of success or another. And that's Alma 1 through 16. Now, the next section covers the same 14 years, but it's in a flashback. And in that flashback, it's covering the same period of time that the first 16 chapters of Alma are covering, focusing on Alma. But now we're talking about the sons of Mosiah and what they were doing during that same 14 year period. And that is from Alma 17, 5 through 27, 16, that we get their exploits, the sons of Mosiah. We know both periods are 14 years because the book of Alma begins with the first year of the reign of the judges. As I said, Alma has just assumed the offices of both chief judge and high priest, while the four sons of Mosiah have headed off to preach the gospel to the Lamanites. I think we probably all know the story. But when Alma happens to meet the sons of Mosiah in Alma 17, we are expressly told by the text that the sons of Mosiah had been teaching the word of God for the space of 14 years among the Lamanites. So there's the key. That's Alma 17, verse 4. It tells us not only that the mission of the sons of Mosiah to the Lamanites lasted 14 years, but also that the account given of Alma's activities after the sons of Mosiah left also has to be 14 years. So now we have 14 years doubled by means of this flashback. We recall that Matthew mentions 14 generations of Jesus three times for emphasis. The book of Alma may do something similar because it isn't done with the number 14 yet. Now we get to the last half of Alma, which I think every member of the church who has read the Book of Mormon knows is packed full of the war chapters. In fact, that's what it's called is the war chapters. Well, as it turns out, when you count those years that are the war chapters, that's another set of 14 years. I counted this and I found it out for myself. And then with further research, I was surprised to see other people had noticed it before. I think Hugh Nibley had also mentioned that this was a 14 years war between the Nephites and the Lamanites. So he had counted it up as well. Um, for reference, the period of the wars begins in the commencement of the 18th year. So the beginning of the 18th year of the reign of the judges, that's Alma 43.4. And it continues through to the end of the 30 and first year of the reign of the judges. And that's Alma 62.39, right at the end of the, um, the book of Alma. So that is 14 years expressly mentioned. It's not stated that this is 14 years, but if you actually count from the time it starts, to the time it ends, it's 14 years. So we see that the book of Alma appears to be structured around three sets of 14 years. Alma's 14 year ministry among the Nephites, the concurrent 14 year ministry of the sons of Mosiah among the Lamanites, and the 14 years of war between the Nephites and the Lamanites. So as with Matthew's genealogy of Jesus, the author of the book of Alma appears to structure the narrative to present three sets of 14. Now I have to add here, by the way, it looks like Don Bradley is has entered the waiting room. Should I admit him? I'm going to admit Don. I just admitted him. Don, are you there? 
Don? Hello, Don. Well, hopefully he's listening. I want to make sure that he knows that I raised him up the flagpole and saluted him at the beginning of this. Okay. Well, I can't hear him. He's a, he's a shy sort, retiring. All right. So, Don, I talked all about you at the beginning and what an incredible scholar you, you are oh. and how this wouldn't <laughs> have existed without you it, uh, oh, cool. and your, your, um, your expertise, your brilliance. Oh, thank you. Okay. I just wanted because you, 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 you missed it and I didn't want you to yeah. not know that. <laughs> cool. Thanks. Yeah, it's been all downhill since there. <laughs> Okay, so now we're to the part that I really think is the, the really interesting part. By the way, talking about the structure of Alma, it's not perfect in the sense of these three sets of 14 years. Does it really account for everything in the book of Alma? Because there is a period, I think it's three years in between those two concurrent ministries of Alma and the Sons of Mosiah and the starting up of the wars. So there's three years there. You could say it's three years of peace. Three years is an important number. I bring it up just to... Uh, say that it's not a perfect set of three sets of 14. There's a three-year period in between that's not accounted for in this analysis. Okay. But now we get to the really, really interesting part. And this is where I find the evidence to be persuasive to me. Um, the crucial test, I think, is like what we saw with Matthew in the genealogy, where an author takes something that is he's got the real world. He knows what the number is. The number isn't symbolically significant enough to suit his purposes. So he changes it and he makes it something different for symbolic effect. We already talked about that, but I believe that there are three examples of this that I see in the Book of Mormon. And like I said before, this tends to indicate that the author is doing this on purpose. And once again, you're going to have relatively few instances because you got to have the real world and you got to have the symbolic world, both mentioned in the same text to compare. And I think we have three of those in the Book of Mormon. The first one is the seven tribes of the Book of Mormon. Early on in the Book of Mormon, the Lehite tribes are numbered at seven. This is Jacob chapter one, verse 13, consisting of the Nephites, Jacobites, Josephites, Zoramites, Lamanites, Lemuelites, and Ishmaelites, a latent hepdad. It is seven. The only problem with this is that we all know that there were not seven Lehite tribes. There were eight. Who's missing? If anybody said Sam, that's the answer. Right, Sam's missing. Sam is like the shadow figure in the Book of Mormon. We, we don't know hardly, excuse me, we know hardly anything about him except for the fact that he exists. And I remember mentioning this to a friend of mine, I think it was just uh, last week. And the friend said, well, Sam didn't have any descendants. And I said, yeah, he did. In fact, the Book of Mormon says he did. So we know that Sam had descendants and hence there should have been a Samite tribe. And that's 2 Nephi chapter four, verse 11. So what the author has done here is the author has taken eight tribes and consciously reshaped the narrative apparently in order to make the number of tribes tally to the symbolically significant number of seven. So the question then also becomes to me, well, did the author just make a mistake? I mean, Sam is not an important figure. Did the author just forget Sam? Is this something that is not intentional? It's actually uh, just negligence on the part of the author. 
Well, actually, the text answers that question for us, because according to the text, no, the author did not forget Sam. This is no mistake. The author recognizes that Sam has descendants and would therefore have a tribe. But instead of counting Sam's descendants as an eighth tribe, the author provides a reason for not including Sam. And the author writes, and this is 2 Nephi 4.11, that Sam's seed shall be numbered with Nephi's seed. Nephi's there in brackets in my quote. Um, because what that verse says is, blessed art thou and thy seed. So this is uh, Lehi blessing Sam. Patriarchal blessing time right before Lehi shuffles off this mortal coil. Blessed art thou and thy seed, Lehi to Sam, for thou shalt inherit the land like unto thy brother Nephi, and thy seed shall be numbered with his seed. That's where we know that uh, Sam did have descendants. And thou shalt be even like unto thy brother, and thy seed like unto his seed, and thou shalt be blessed in all thy days. By the way, that is actually a chiasmus, if anybody cares. It's a very nice little chiasmus. Um, and I have it diagrammed here in front of me. I should have had a slide. I'm sorry, it's too lazy to bring up a slide, but everybody here knows what a chiasmus is. So let me just say first line, blessed art thou and thy seed, for thou shalt inherit the land like unto thy brother Nephi, and thy seed shall be numbered. That's the, the end part of the, the turning point of the chiasmus. And thy seed shall be numbered with his seed. So now we're coming back and repeating seed. And thou shalt be even like unto thy brother, which matches, for thou shalt inherit the land like unto thy brother Nephi, and thy seed like unto his seed, which goes back to matching, and thy seed. And then finally, and thou shalt be blessed in all thy days, which ends where it starts with blessed art thou. So that's in 2 Nephi 4.11. Uh, it really jumped out at me when I was looking at this closely, and I was looking at it closely mainly because I was doing this research. Let me... I'm going to skip that. If it comes up in questions, that's fine. I'm really, really trying just to give the, the brief outline. Okay. Now, this isn't something that we just see with tribes in uh, the book of a uh, book of Abraham. I'm sorry. I'm talk thinking about Friday already. But the book of Mormon, because it also happens in the Old Testament. The Old Testament has an insistence that the tribes of Israel be numbered at 12. Once again, three times four. And... Though Jacob had 12 sons and each son had a tribe, thus making the 12 tribes of Israel, the numbering became more difficult when Joseph had two sons. Because Joseph is obviously one of those 12 sons of Jacob, 12 tribes of Israel. But he has two sons that uh, are given special preeminence in the record as we have it. And that's, of course, Ephraim and Manasseh. Both Ephraim and Manasseh were given tribal land shares in Canaan, which effectively raises the total number of tribes from 12 to 13. And that's when we omit Joseph because they're already omitting Joseph to make room for the two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. But even omitting Joseph, it raises it from 12 to 13. You get an additional one when you take out the one Joseph and add the two Ephraim and Manasseh. So now we've got 13 tribes. Well, that's not going to do. We need to keep it at 12 tribes. So in order to maintain the number of tribes at the symbolically significant number of 12, the tribe of Levi was excluded when Ephraim and Manasseh were mentioned as separate tribes. And there's three references for that. I'll give it really quick. Numbers 132 through 34 
Joshua 17, 14 through 17, and 1 Chronicles 7 and 20. So this modification of 13 tribes back to 12 was justified by the fact that Levi's descendants did not receive a land inheritance because they served at the temple as the priestly tribe. So what it appears is that the Old Testament modifies the figure of 13 tribes to 12 in order to maintain this important number, just as the Book of Mormon modifies the figure of eight tribes or the number of eight tribes to seven, omitting the tribe of Sam which the Book of Mormon goes out of its way to draw special attention to by pointing out that Sam's seed is being numbered with Nephi's. And this appears to be precisely the kind of superimposition of Hebrew numerology on the real world information of a text we would expect to see by an author familiar with, if not maybe immersed in a culture similar to that of the ancient Hebrews. Okay, I find this remarkable. And the Book of Mormon, by the way, for no extra charge, the Book of Mormon lists these artificial, though numerologically portentous, seven Lehite tribes three times over the course of the Book of Mormon. So we know that seven is at not exactly the real world, but it's the seven tribes they want to have. It's listed three times. And as I say, it's through the course of the Book of Mormon. And those references are Jacob 113, 4th Nephi 137 through 38, and Mormon 1, 8, and 9. So something really does appear to be going on here, and it doesn't look like it's coincidence anymore. I think the stuff about the structure of Alma with the 14s, yeah, that could be coincidence. But when you start looking at this, it appears that there's an intelligent author changing things to make things symbolically significant. Regardless of where it comes from, the old world or uh, 19th century, Somebody's doing it on purpose. That's my take. And I think that one example would tend to prove that point pretty conclusively, but there's more. The second one, which is probably not so well known, the story is it's the seven year food supply in third Nephi. You remember the story about the Gadiant and robbers and they become this huge threat to both the Nephites and the Lamanites. So the Nephites and the Lamanites say, we're getting killed out here. So what we need to do is we need to gather together in one place and not farm out there because when they're farming, that's where the Gadian robbers are coming in and stealing. And that's how the Gadian robbers are subsisting is off the work of the, the Nephites and the Lamanites. So the plan was we'll get together in one place. We'll sort of have it barricaded so that the Gadian robbers won't be able to, to feed off of our farm and our crops and our um, livestock, whatever that might have been. Um, but they're going to do this for seven years. So they take a seven-year food supply with them. Let me see here. This is 3 Nephi chapter 4, verse 4. And the language is, having reserved for themselves provisions and horses and cattle and flocks of every kind, that they might subsist for the space of seven years years. So very specific, the seven years. But later on, the text tells us that in the real world, this siege, the self-imposed siege that the Lamanites and Nephites did actually lasted longer than seven years. The siege lasts between eight and nine years, not seven. And we find that in third Nephi chapter three, verse 22, and actually, I'm thinking that that might be earlier. Yeah, 3 Nephi 3, 22 and 3 Nephi 6, 2. So it's earlier and later. 
Okay, so here's what we find in those two references, that the siege lasts from the latter end of the 17th year, that's 3rd Nephi 3.22, until the Nephites return to their own lands sometime in the 20 and 6th year. And even then, they had not eaten up all their provisions, is what 3rd Nephi 6.2 tells us. So in this other instance, is this the author consciously manipulating real-world information of provisions for an eight- to nine-year siege, and still having some left over, remember, by reducing the actual time period to the symbolically significant period of seven years? It looks like the same kind of thing is going on. And the thing that makes this a little bit squishy is that when you're taking provisions that are actual animals that reproduce, like horses and cattle and flocks of every kind, then... I mean, they're having, I almost said children, but <laughs> they're, uh, they're presumably reproducing. And so there's certain um, squishiness to how long that's going to last. If they reproduce well, then you're going to have food for longer. But the text itself says seven years of food supply for this uh, the siege. And yet, when you look at the text talking about how long it actually lasted in the real world, it's longer than seven years, it's actually between eight and nine years. And we can't get any more definite as to how long between the eight and the nine years because the text does not give us that information. Okay, so now the third one, and this is the final one, by the way. I think you'll be glad to hear this. This is something in Alma chapter 51, it's when the Lamanites are beating the heck out of the Nephites during these wars. And they're just taking city after city after city. I think this is under Amalickiah before he gets killed by Tiancum and his brother Amaron takes over. But the first time I'm reading the Book of Mormon, I actually noticed this. And I have to give myself credit for that because I'm 18 years old and I wasn't noticing a whole lot as far as details went. But I was watching or reading it closely enough to see that um, something funny happens. This is going to be in Alma chapter 51, verses 23 through 26, which I'm going to read in its entirety. On its face, it's very simply listing seven cities that Amalickiah is taking from the Nephites, but something else more interesting is going on underneath. And it came to pass that the Nephites were not sufficiently strong in the city of Moroni. Therefore, Amalickiah did drive them, slaying many. And it came to pass that Amalickiah took possession of, here's number one, the city of Moroni. Yea, possession of all their fortifications. And those who fled out of the city of Moroni came to the city of Nephiha. And also the people of the city of Lehi gathered themselves together and made preparations and were ready to receive the Lamanites to battle. But it came to pass that Amalickiah would not suffer the Lamanites to go against the city of Nephiha to battle. Now keep your eye on the city of Nephiha, because this next part made no sense to me when I was 18. And it makes no sense to me now, at least in a real world kind of discussion. Because right after it says that Amalickiah would not suffer the Lamanites to go against the city of Nephiha to battle, but kept them down by the seashore, leaving men in every city to maintain and defend it. The very next line is, and thus he went on taking possession of many cities. The next, the first one listed is the city of Nephiha. So right after saying, we're not going to go against Nephiha because it's too strong. Then it continues with its list of cities that were taken. And the next one is Nephiha, which seems strange. It seems counterintuitive to have Nephiha listed as a city there. But you remember earlier on, number one was the city of Moroni. 
Now, number two becomes the city of Nephi Ha, and three, the city of Lehi, and four, the city of Morianton, and five, the city of Omner, and six, the city of Gid, and seven, the city of Mulek, all of which were on the east borders by the seashore. Okay, so that's all those verses, 51 of Alma, chapter 51, verses 23 through 26, and that's seven cities. But what the heck is going on with Nephi Ha? Something strange is happening here. There's, there's part of the story that we're not getting. And what makes this even more interesting is that later on in the text of Alma, we find out that Nephi Ha was not actually captured by the Lamanites until five years later. When Amaron, remember Amaron is, uh, succeeds his brother, Amalickiah, when Amaron sent his armies against it. That's Alma 59, verses 5 through 12. I'm not going to read all of that. You're welcome. But yeah, so why is it that this list of seven cities is including the name of Nephi Ha, a city, being taken by the Nephites, when first off, the text itself says that it was too strong to go against, and then later on we find out it wasn't taken at this time. It wasn't taken until five years later. Well, that raises the question in my mind. The answer is apparently that the author wanted to have a list of seven cities and not six that were taken by the Lamanites. So here, six would be the real world number of cities taken, but the author doesn't want six. Six will not do. He wants seven. And the author was willing to sacrifice chronological accuracy and even the textual flow of the story in order to do so, in order to make the number of cities arrive at seven. So here appears to be a third example in the Book of Mormon of the author consciously shaping real world information in order to arrive at the symbolically significant number of seven. Conclusion. We know that the number seven and its multiples were very significant in the ancient world, including among the writers of the Old and New Testaments. We know that the number seven and its multiples also appear to be of symbolic significance in the Book of Mormon, which purports to derive from the same old world Melu as the Bible, and certainly had as its immediate author, Joseph Smith, someone who was very, apparently very familiar with those types of things. Although if Joseph Smith were the author, it would seem that he was more familiar with it than many might originally have thought or believed. But most importantly, for my purposes, the Bible contains instances of the author consciously and intentionally manipulating real world information in order to arrive at a symbolically significant number. This is more than mere coincidence and indicates not only an understanding and appreciation, excuse me, appreciation, for old world numerology on the part of the authors, but a willingness to superimpose that numerology on historical events to change the tally to the desired symbolic number. If my analysis is correct, and I'll leave that judgment to you, the Book of Mormon appears to do exactly the same thing. So regardless of one's opinion as to who wrote the Book of Mormon, the text itself seems to show sure and unmistakable signs that the author or authors were not only aware of the significance 
of this old world numerology as it existed among the ancient Hebrews, as well as others that, that I mentioned, but intentionally and consciously incorporated that numerology into the warp and woof of the Nephite record. Period. End of presentation. Thank you for your attention. I hope some of you are still awake. Okay, I've got another one. I was kidding. Okay, I thought you were. <laughs> so I look so red here. I can't believe I look red. My light is actually yellow. So I'm pink. A, I'm pink. I, I, just, <laughs> I have no idea what's going on. I don't usually look this way, but uh, it's probably because of the nerves. Pinky Seven shades Tuscanero. of pink. It's one of my favorite movies. <laughs> 40 shades of pink. <laughs> Trevor Trevor shifted now, but uh, he, he had a perfect uh, halo uh, over him uh, when he yeah, there we go. That's better. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Holy so There we have it. What do you think? And what are your questions? The two sevens was new to me. That was that was interesting. The list of seven, 14 uh, being as interesting as uh, 12 and uh, seven. So thanks, RFM and Brad. Yeah, that Whoa. was that was Don interesting. Bradley. Seeing the groups of the numbers, uh, really, definitely, you have just given me extra ammo for my presentation. See, now he's extended beyond the live chat. Now he's going to be doing plugs for his his show, his podcast, just right out here in the comments. He's just going to be talking about it. Go ahead. <laughs> That's Two the hands. backyard professor. It's available at more discussions podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Not and he does a fantastic job, by the way. I love nearly as good as Mormonism Live, however, and Bill Real. Okay, well, some things go get there eventually. Some things go without saying, Carrie. But <laughs> <laughs> no, you're wonderful. Real. I love watching you out in the wilderness and God's nature and fighting off the mosquitoes and the occasional mountain lion while you're recording. Raid before videoing is my motto. That is a very, very good idea. Yes, it is. <laughs> so, are there other questions that? Uh, members of the audience uh, who have not spoken up yet would like to ask our speaker. I have can, a question. Uh, before, yeah. I have a question before Carrie goes, because you might take all the rest of the time. <laughs> anyway. Um, so I'm just wondering, I'm going to kind of assume here that Joseph Smith wrote the book of Mormon, but um, I wondered um, if you could talk a little bit about um what you think, um, whether this use of Hebrew numerology comes from Joseph Smith's actual acquaintance with Hebrew numerology or just with the fact that he encounters all the sevens in the Bible um, and kind of imitates that? That is a great question, Cheryl. And I'll tell you, I don't know. If it were just the number seven showing up an unusual amount of time, or even 14 maybe, showing up more than it should statistically in the Book of Mormon, I would feel more comfortable chalking that up just to, well, it's an important number, and I know it's an important number, so we'll use it a lot. But somebody, somebody went to the effort and had the mental cognition and awareness to replicate what we see on very few occasions in the Bible of changing real world information to a numerologically significant number. And I guess all I can say is whoever did that 
I'm impressed. This never would have occurred to me to do or to even think of doing before I did the research for this paper. And in complete transparency, ironically, this was published in 2014. I have referred to this as the, um, the holy grail of Book of Mormon apologetics and only partly tongue in cheek, okay? But the irony and the reality is, is that, you know, I mean, we worked on this for like a couple of years before it was published in BYU Studies in 2014, but the irony was that as this was coming out, this paper was coming out, I was on my way out. So whatever the, um, the force of this to an individual's mind as to the provenance of the Book of Mormon or the complexity of the Book of Mormon, all I can say is it wasn't enough to take me back or to hold me in. All right, RFM, up your game and maybe it'll fix us. Uh, uh, take uh, the Hebrew translation of the Book of Mormon and let's do Gramatia on it and find some interesting stuff. Do you say Gematria? Yeah, I probably didn't say that right. I, I think you know what I meant, uh, Hebrew uh, mathematics against the the characters, values, in addition, uh, being uh, uh, Bible code type uh, hidden messages. I think it would be fascinating. It I've what? heard it pronounced as gematria. But yeah, yeah. Oh, there you go. There you go. Well, Carrie's known for mispronouncing technical terms. Oh, I'm, I'm the idiot here. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have no idea. I have no idea. Um, I mean, I say Dionysus. And you say something different, don't you, Carrie? Yes. <laughs> I mean, recently, over and over in your most recent podcast, right? So I don't know because it's all Greek to me. But yeah, I see what you did there. Thank you. But I think that would be a, uh, what Chad what Chad suggests would be a great idea. Except I think we have a problem at the outset because we don't have an original text of the Book of Mormon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but we have. Don't we have it in Hebrew? Haven't they translated into Hebrew? It was. Sure. It was. And Sammy Hanna was the one who did that. Was that back in the sixties or the seventies? And that's what got him converted to the church. Yeah which he subsequently left. And we used to hear about the first part of the story, but never about the last part of the story. No, he really did leave. Really? Well, yes, he did. But we in church, I didn't know that. in right. church, we heard the right. first part of the story. And I think it was president, not, not then president, but elder Russell M. Nelson, who referred to it in one of his talks. So I think he was involved in some way. So he talked about him joining the church because he was just so overwhelmed with the fact that the book of Mormon translates back into perfect Hebrew, you know, but uh, even that didn't last. For Sammy Hanna. So I've got a question from really quickly from the chat. Uh, this is from Corey and Katie. Have you just so I'm reading their question here. Have you discovered what messaging might be behind any of these instances of the magic number seven? Well, I will tell you that um, I don't view it as magic, though certainly some people do and some cultures do as a magic number with power and significance. I'm looking at it more in terms of just a literary construct and a literary feature to emphasize completeness and fullness. I haven't looked at it in terms of there's some kind of magic. I don't really see, or I haven't seen any usage of it to convey magical properties, but more as a literary technique to underscore how important this is and how complete and full and wonderful it is. And maybe God inspired it is. May, may I ask a question from the opposite end? Um, I'm going to play devil's advocate with you for a second. Um, 
you mentioned, at least you've described two instances where the numbers were manipulated, possibly three in the Book of Mormon, but considering the size of it, couldn't that just be chalked up to, I mean, why aren't there more? If they were going to make that big deal about it and they wanted to emphasize it, being scattered hither and yon to the Book of Mormon doesn't impress me at all. But if it was if it was more systematic, regular, especially with truly significant times in the Book of Mormon, say like Christ showing up and stuff like that, wouldn't 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 that have helped the Book of Mormon better? Well, just so you know, I'm not trying to help the Book of Mormon, and I know you don't mean it that way, Carrie. What? No, I'm not trying to help anybody. Well, then what the heck? But here's what I'm going to say in response to you, because that's a great question. Uh, and this is why I emphasized or tried to emphasize before the fact that this is such a rare combination of events where you have in the same text, both the real world number and then the symbolic number. And that's going to happen very rarely um, in the entire Bible, which is a lot bigger than the Book of Mormon, Old and New Testaments. I think that really, I mean, all I've seen or found are the instances of the, the 12 tribes of Israel becoming 13, but made 12 again in the Old Testament, because you've got both of those, and in the New Testament, the genealogy of Matthew. So that's not a lot of instances either. All right, yeah. that's a good point. Yeah. So actually, the Book of Mormon, a smaller book, apparently has has three, at least that I've identified, and the Bible may have two. Yeah, right. All right. So once again, the Book of Mormon beats the Bible. And we have a question from Nolan King. Go ahead, Nolan. Okay. Um, sorry, I'm, I'm a little nervous to talk. I'm new here. Um, but, um, so, um, the question about it showing up in the coming of Christ, um, I noticed this recently, um, when you turn, when you, um, factor in the, the four classical elements, um, the, in third Nephi, uh, the four classical elements are used for the destruction, um, and it makes a big deal of this. Um, that You're talking about earth, wind, fire, and earth, um, wind, fire, water. and water. It makes a big deal of this in Third Nephi that the four classical elements are what do the the destruction. And then there's the um, the voice comes four times describing this, and only on the fifth time um, when Christ. Uh, is actually heard. Well, the father's heard through the spirit. Um, and like you're talking about in the beginning, the three represents heaven. Um, so the fifth element in the classical elements embodying that three of heaven. So only on the, the fifth time that the voice comes, do they and Holy Ghost. So you have the four elements and then inside the fifth element, the, the heavens speak. So that's your seven. Um, in the third Nephi. Um, and so there that to me, that's, you know, speaking through the four elements and then through the three of heaven. And the voice comes five times, four representing the destruction and the fifth element or in ancient times, the ether. Um, and we have a book of ether. And I would say that that same uh Thing it plays out in the book of Ether with the coming forth of the Urim and Thummim. Um, the brother of Jared, he, he takes of the earth, the ore. Um, he uses the wind with the bellows. 
to blow the fire, and then you you immerse the the Urim and Thummim in the water. So that's your four elements, and then you have the Father, Son, Holy Ghost appearance that that gives the spiritual fifth element, uh, that sealed portion of that ether that uh, that comes into play with the creation of the Urim and Thummim. Same happens with with Nephi um, when he's creating the tools in First Nephi. He does the same steps. He takes the ore, he makes the bellows, blows the blows the fire, you know, immersion in water, and then he has the Spirit come and he's imbued with the powers of heaven. That Father, Son, Holy Ghost. That's the seven. So, like you said in the beginning, you have four and three. Uh, the four physical elements and the fifth element being that the heavens, Father, Son, Holy Ghost. And that that comes into play to me in the most significant portions of the Book of Mormon um, in First Nephi, Third Nephi and then the Urim and Thummim. So that to me, those are that seven coming into play again. So. I think that's a really interesting insight and one I had not considered. Um, when you talk about the voice coming four times at the destructions in Third Nephi, um, is is it Third Nephi eleven at the very beginning where the voice about you know God introducing His Son as He comes down after the destructions? That's three times, right? So you have four with the destructions, if that's correct. And I haven't looked; I'm, I'm assuming it is. But then three times in the segue for now the heavenly part. With Jesus coming down, yeah, so there's there's five. It comes five times. So the first time it describes the destruction of the with the four elements, and then there's a space where they're they they think about it and they mourn for the destruction. Then the voice comes again the second time, and then there's another space, and then they hear the voice. Then they then it's three times. So it adds up to five times that the voice speaks, but it's only the fifth time that they understand that it's, it's the Lord speaking. Are you including in your number, the introduction of Jesus in third Nephi 11? It just says a voice comes. So, um, whether it's father, son, Holy ghost, um, it's, it just says a voice from heaven. Okay. And who has their scriptures with them? Cause I don't, I'm embarrassed to say I could run over there and get them, but then you'd see what I'm wearing. So I just wanted to mention that that was that's all really brilliant, Norm. I, I like that a lot. And on the Urim and Thummim, the interpreters, uh, I don't know if you've gotten my book yet, but if you haven't, then the this part about Mosiah would be relevant there. I've got it, Don. I just haven't read it yet. I apologize. Oh, you're totally good. We're talking about the the lost 160 lost pages. pages. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. So if I could ask uh, Nolan, because um, you kept hitting the point that the fifth element uh, and you, you reference ether, you're speaking now in terms of alchemy. Is that correct? Yes. And so this is the quintessence. And so the fifth, the fifth element or quintessence is actually three combined into one. So in Christian terms, it requires the Trinity to complete or reach the quintessence. Is that, is yes. that kind of what you're getting at? Yes, sir. 
So Nolan has been doing a lot of research on this. I'm, I'm looking forward to this bearing a lot of fruit. He was kind enough to uh, allow me to read a paper that he was writing. And I know you've been doing further research and working with the historian. Have, have you been developing this uh, line of research with that historian? And we, we've talked about it a lot. Um, we, we were going to do more alchemy type stuff in our, in the sunstone presentation, but I, we had a hard time narrowing down uh, what to talk about. So, um, and I, I'm in graduate school right now and I'm, I've been super busy, but I, I do want to, to work on it more. <laughs> well, you'll, you'll have to come share it here um, as it, as it develops. We'd love to have you come. Yeah. Uh, speak on it to us that would be that'd be fantastic who is it you're working with Nolan? um i worked throughout the summer um with um uh l ray henriksen oh. of the community of christ yeah oh, wow. he has a, a book of mormon study group um oh. and um there's there's some really interesting stuff in that that group going on cool wow I think it's fascinating. Thank you for, for throwing that in there, Nolan. I think there's a lot of things going on, the vast majority of which I'm totally unaware of. It's like the old Sam Cooke song, don't know much about alchemy. That's me. And I need a laugh track or something. I need a laugh track just so I know if, if these are landing or if they're really just going off the end of the aircraft carrier like they all seem to be. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yeah, hey, and the only, uh, the only thing I know about- Can I ask quick, you a question, uh, RFM? Yes. Sorry. The only um, thing I know about quintessence is where it shows up in uh, Hamlet, right? Where Hamlet's talking about yeah. what a work is man, and he ends up with this quintessence of dust. Yeah. That's all I know. I didn't even know what it was until you mentioned what it really is, Nolan. All I know is to pee or not to pee. That is the question. <laughs> <laughs> this late in the presentation, you better figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hoping he chose the latter. But <laughs> so I can't anyway, tell. Go ahead. Yes. Um, and this is also aimed at, at Don as well. It, my recollection, when I first heard that you guys were working on this research, at, at the time, there was actually a discussion of the number eight. And uh, I don't know whether that was Don or you or, or who was, but the, the number eight also seems to be uh, maybe less so than seven, but possibly uh, a, a symbolic and important number. It shows up in the Bible. I think in one of the, like the, one of the epistles of Peter, uh, it's related somehow to the ark. Um, mm. Anyhow, I, when my the world recollection was baptized that, by water, in which uh, few that is eight souls were saved. Yeah, exactly. Good. Wow, uh, impressive. You always your memory really uh, impresses me. So, either either you or Don. Don, were you working on eight, or is am I misremembering? I'm waiting for Don to respond. I don't know. Yeah, Don, he, did you have anything you wanted to be, say? I had, a, I had a, I had a sorry, comment, but I want to hear from Don first. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I didn't realize I was muted. Um, 
Yeah, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that I was working on eight as such, but I found some things that dealt with eight. I dealt with eight in connection with seven, right? So the um, the mule, the story of the Mulekites. So Emer um, Harris, who was a brother of Martin Harris and ancestor of Dallin Harris Oaks, um, he gave a talk on April 6, 1856 at the Provo Tabernacle where he'd been asked to speak like commemorating the founding of the church. And um, he said a little bit about what was in the lost pages of the Book of Mormon. And it was just a little snippet, but it's something that we don't have in the extant Book of Mormon text. And he says that um, there were four, that, that in Mulek's group, there were four members of the sort of royal household or extended royal family who, um, like four men, four males who escaped the destruction, right, from the king of Babylon, um, and then four females, and so eight together, right, four pairs, and they traveled to the New World, and they were the founders of the Mulekite nation. So um, one of the things that I found, obviously that echoes uh, Noah, right, but then um, one of the other things that interested me was um, they would have constituted an eighth tribe, right? If you add them to the, the Lehite seven tribes. Um, and yet um, when I was looking at the, the monetary denominations in Alma 10, um, they're based on a, a sort of um, a system of doubling Right. So you have like one unit that's worth like two of another. And then you have a unit that's worth like four of that original unit. And so the next thing you'd expect would be eight. Right. But actually, the next one is seven. And um, so I was wondering if there was a, a deliberate avoidance there actually of eight. And you'll notice that while we refer to, I refer to the Mulekites, the Book of Mormon never once uses that term. Like it, it always calls them the people of Zarahemla, which is a really preposterous thing to call them because that would be like calling our country, you know, the, the, the people of Biden or something, right? Like just the most recent leader or, or sort of the latest leader rather than like the founding leader. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, um, it seems like they're, you would think they'd be an eighth tribe and their sacred number is presumably eight. That's enshrined in their mythos, right? But then where you would expect eight to pop up in the, the monetary system of the combined peoples of Nephi and Zarahemla uh, or Muluk, um, you don't get eight, you get seven. And so that's one of the, they're also, um, I mean, the number 24, you know, appears multiple places, especially in connection with the Jaredites. And the Jaredites have eight barges, which is, again, probably echoing Noah and sort mm -hmm. of prefiguring the Mulekites. Um, and then they have like the... And didn't they have 16 shining stones? They have 16 shining stones, which, of course, she has a multiple of eight. But then when you take the eight barges and you combine them with the 16 stones, you get 24 and there are 24 Jaredite plates. So 24, of course, like the main thing I think of is it's doubling of 12, right? Yeah. But it's also three eights. Yeah. 
so yeah, something's going on there with the AIDS. Yeah. Thank you. So I really appreciate I just, that. I have like a little suggestion um, because of just knowing like eight is a departure from the natural world into the supernatural world. And seven is, you know, completeness or perfect number. Um, so if you have the monetary system, for example, you don't want to depart from the natural world into the supernatural with the monetary system. You'd rather go with the seven, right? Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. in the case of the Jaredite, um, you know, stones and and the Urim and Thummim and all that kind of stuff is more of a supernatural. So you'd want to go with the eight, right? Mm -hmm. Well, the eight know. is also the sacred Ogdoad. Mm -hmm. A lot of the ancient mystery cults too, and it and it does have more to do with the heavens than the earth, which is interesting because, like RFM said, though four is the earth, so you double four and then you get to heaven, but mm. yet three is the heaven. So, that's, but then seven's the virgin number anciently too. So mm. that was that was much stronger than the eight, but there are some. They're competing, man. This is competition. Yeah. Mathematics. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I agree with you, Carrie. And then I think that if you're looking at the text and um, you figure which number would be more appropriate for what we're talking about or what we want to point out in the text, hmm. then you would manipulate it to be that number. Yeah. If you're I, manipulating it, which I think you've done a really good job, RFM, in, in proving that it, it is being manipulated. Thank you. And that's the main thrust of what I was trying to get at. I know that uh, I think it's Nolan has his hand raised. I just want to add this comment. And this is not to detract from the excellent comments that have been made. And I don't want to be seen as constraining it in any way. But I think that there's also an element of how we count um, in America, where I was born and raised, so I'm familiar with how we count. Um, I become one year old after I've lived on this earth for 12 months. And then I have my first birthday. And then another 12 months, I have my second birthday. But actually, when I'm one year old, I'm entering into my second year, right? And so even sometimes like Joseph Smith talking about being in his 15th year, well, he's actually 14. It's just a different way of saying the same thing. That's sort of that imp imposition of that different counting system. I, I think that, I didn't go to China on my mission, but I think the Chinese do it differently that when you're born, you're one year old. Hmm. So you're one year old for your entire first year, which makes its own kind of sense. And then when you have your first birthday, well, uh, that, I'm sorry, what we, what I would think of as the first birthday, now it becomes the second birthday, right? So you're two for your entire second year. And my understanding, correct me if I have this wrong, because I really might, I'm, I'm stretching for this, but I think that the, the ancient Hebrews did it more similarly to the, um, the Chinese hmm. than we do. So then there's this question, how do you count? And there are some times when I think that maybe the eight is what we would call a seven. But it almost sounds like I'm straining for effect, you know, to try and cover bases and, and incorporate more. I believe that when I was researching this, that wasn't part of the paper, that there are different places in the Old Testament where it's talking about the, um, we talked about the sabbatical years being every seventh year. It's the Jubilee, right? And a Jubilee is how many? 49. 50. 50. Thank you. Because those, both of those answers are correct. At least both of those answers are reflected in the Old Testament. 
that some will say it's 50 years and others will say it's 49. And the question and the debate is, are they talking about different numbers or are they talking about the same number in different ways? Hmm. It's 49 because that's seven squared, right? Well, right. I mean, that is what the Jubilee is. It's the super uh, sabbatical year. It's seven times seven. Uh, But then again, do you get to seven times seven? And then the year after that, the 50th year is the Jubilee year. So is it 50 or is it 49? And maybe it just depends on how you count it. It's 42. It's 42. According to Douglas (laughs) Adams. There you go. (laughs) That's funny. I, I'm, I'm laughing and I don't get it, but I think it has something to do with hitchhikers <laughs> and the galaxy. I'm so glad Carrie's muted because otherwise he would blow my eardrums out with that laughter right now. <laughs> I, can, can I uh, uh, throw something in? Uh, I, so I, one, one thing I think I've read about this a while back. I think uh, the, the base six, which would include 12, I think potentially, which we see a lot of, uh, I, I've heard, uh, and we see six showing up sometimes in the Old Testament, 360, I don't know, something happened. I can't remember the details. But but some have argued that that's a Babylonian influence because they, they did everything on base six. And, and, and so the Hebrews, some people have argued, well, the Hebrews were, were in competition with the Babylonians. And so they went with seven because the Babylonians went with six, you know. And today our clocks are all, they're Babylonian clocks. We have 60 minutes and all that jazz, you know. Um, so anyway, I throw out that maybe the, the 6 and the 12 uh, might be a, a Babylonian influence during the, the period of captivity. Uh, it, but I, I wanted to, to say this is all very interesting. And, and so the question is, you know, was Joseph Smith trying to do something? Uh, and was it coincidence or did it, is there really something there? That, and that's hard to, to determine, but I got thinking, hey, there's, if Joseph Smith is like putting numerology uh, or whatever in into his work, one really interesting place to look would be in his translation of Genesis. Is it chapter six where he uh, does the genealogies, right, of the patriarchs? And he adds, uh, he changes that sometimes. And by the way, that genealogy is full of numeric stuff, right? It's it's just loaded. Every age of every patriarch has got some some uh, numerological significance. Uh, Joseph Smith changes some of those, but he also adds the pre the date that they got the priesthood, as I recall. And that would be interesting for somebody to look at the the ages of priesthood, and is there something going on? Because you think he would do that if he had the chance right there. Anyway, that's, that's my uh, comment. That's really fascinating, Claire. Good comment. I agree. I'm sorry. Was it turned back to me or to the person who's conducting this? <laughs> well, along those lines, um, I, I, one of the most fascinating things about your presentation uh, is this, uh, idea of number being manipulated and not matching the reality. So, you know, so a six is turned into a seven or 
Uh, a, a 13 is turned into a 14 in the Bible. And I'm wondering if there's a way in which it's possible that, um, that this is supposed to reflect something about the nature of the book in, in almost a magical sense that, um, you know, there's the idea, for example, that Joseph Smith promulgates that the Book of Mormon is the most correct book on earth. And, and, and that almost seems, um, you know, like a contradiction if, if it's filled with these mistakes. But, but these mistakes are actually deliberate additions, numerical additions that raise... N- in, in regular, re- relatively insignificant numbers to being really potent and symbolic numbers, and it almost it almost feels like, and I'm I'm really building on uh, not only what you're thinking about here, RFM, but what Nolan was bringing to the table that in manipulating the numbers in this way, um in reference to reality that there's almost a kind of alchemical process that's taking place in the text itself. And that, you know, it's not just what the text says that seems alchemical, but it's actually the process whereby the factual reality is somehow transmuted and, and turned into something more symbolic and potent, such as, you know, the Book of Mormon isn't just a bunch of plates, they're golden plates, and they're delivered by an angel. I mean, there's there's this real effort to make every aspect of the text seem incredibly divinely significant. I guess that's more of a comment than a question, but I'd be interested in anyone's reaction to that idea. May I just add something that that is an interesting idea. However, um, from my, from my take on it, you mentioned mistake. I, I mean, yeah, it can look like a mistake if it's a deliberate manipulation though. Can we call it a mistake rather than, uh, and intention and does the and i know here we go hang on to your seat belts we're going down the rabbit hole does the spiritual world have to match this material world that we call reality because truly reality is based on our human size for instance hard and soft we say something is hard or soft based on our skin, long or short based on our body, right? So, I mean, I'm not trying to, I'm just saying if we were at at the atomic level, it's all the same, truly. Well, I I would say that it's maybe apparent mistakes, that apparent mistakes are deliberately placed there to draw our attention 
to what's being done. Because symbolically, there's more meaning to the spiritual sense than the material reality. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm just brain. Yeah. No, thank you, Carrie. That's magnificent. I think Don wanted to pipe in. So, yeah, so I, I mean, I actually was going to ask a question that it sounds like is what you were really getting at, Trevor, um, which is, um, I mean, I, raising this question both because I'm interested in what people already think, but also raising it as a question for that I think needs to be explored, needs to be taken into account in understanding the book, right? And that is... Um, so, so maybe, you know, particularly RFM for you, but then also for anyone. Um, so why would there be any mismatch at all in the book if the author is creating the story for themselves, right? So, so sure, if I'm trying to align a real, a literal real world incident, right, with a, sake, a desired number, then I may have to do manipulation. But if I'm creating the story, I could just create it to be seven cities to start with and not have to bother with having, a, you know, having to force a mismatch in there, you know? Um, so, yeah, and it sounds like, Trevor, that's, that's kind of what you're getting at as well. But I'd be interested in, in thoughts. Well, talking about the Noah story, I went back and I looked at it because I was thinking 600. I think this is something that Claire had brought up. And uh, yeah, the text says that the waters finally abated. We all know it was 40 days and 40 nights. And apparently it took 150 days for the waters to, to go down. But it says that the waters finally abated on the first day of the 601st year. So there was a full completion of 600 years, apparently from the beginning. I don't know if that's from probably the fall. Uh, but it says the 601st year, first day of the first month. So that shows up there. Uh, and maybe that Babylonian influence you're talking about. It does strike me what Trevor's talking about, though, is that, I mean, what would be more natural than when you're translating from a certain point of view, this alchemy idea? I don't know much about alchemy, but I know that the, the plates were represented as being gold. And so is it possible? This is just a question. Is it possible that Joseph Smith is using literary techniques and alchemical combinations in order to literarily create the gold plates from which he translated the Book of Mormon in the first place? So yeah, also, I, sorry. Nice, I like that. Oh, Trevor, I was just gonna say that also, um, the way that, because according to Don's question, like if you're making up the story, why do you have to, you know, why can't you just make it the number you want? Anyway, so um, I think that what you were saying, Trevor, about calling attention through the mistake, I think there's something in chiasmus. I haven't studied that in so long, but like it's something like they take a certain um two lines and like switch them around. Do you know what I'm talking about? So if one is supposed to be like line 13 and one is line 14, they take 13 and make it 14. And then, then they switch those two lines around and it's just to kind of call attention to the, you know, so everything else in the chiasmus is perfect, but then you have these two lines that are switched and they're always the same ones. 
Um, and so that just calls attention to those two lines. Has anyone heard that? No, that is fascinating. I have heard that before, you know, I have heard that before, Cheryl, and I think I researched it by which I mean, I asked somebody who knows more about it than I do. <laughs> and I think that the person I asked said, they looked at it and they said, really, they had heard this idea of there's the certain two lines that are changed, mm-hmm. but they didn't find that. They thought that was more of a rumor than anything um. else. And I don't know. I don't know, but I have heard of that idea before. That's just my experience with my research and what it was that this other person told me. I do know that I always have to uh, caution myself against that type of interpretation because if it's true, it's true. But if it's not, it seems like a very attractive way of explaining a discrepancy in what would otherwise be a perfect chiasmic structure. Yeah, but I was just trying to kind of answer Dunn's question to the fact that, um, you know, rather than just using the number that you need, you might use this um, as a technique for calling attention, even more attention yeah. to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, Cheryl, can I mention something about that chiasmus and um, and Second Nephi four eleven mm-hmm. that I didn't mention before? So this is an odd number, which means there's one line that is emphasized. It's the E line, the fifth line. Right. Where it says, blessed art thou in thy seed. This is Lehi's blessing to Sam, remember. For thou shalt inherit the land like unto thy brother Nephi, and thy seed shall be numbered. That's the emphasis. With his mm. seed. And then it goes back the other way. Do you know what the really crazy thing is? Do you know what Sam means in Egyptian? It must be number. <laughs> it, 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 it means united or uniter. Oh, okay. oh weird. Yes, and, and Hugh Nibley had pointed this out, talking about Sam Towie. Which Wait was a, a minute. Yeah. Wait. You tell Sam. me to you tell me to buckle my seatbelt, pal. You buckle yours. It's gonna be a I'm flying up. No, wait, 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 though. I've heard I've heard something too with Sam. Uh, it means united or uniter. It has this element of uniting. And oh, and, and Nibley's using the Egyptian, the Sam Tawi. Yes. Yeah, but the you uniter can't of think- the, the yes, but apparently it's, it's correct because this survived peer review, baby. Well, wait a minute, though. Sam Tawi is not Sam. It's Sam Tawi. You can't ignore the Tawi. The Tawi uh, is the two lands. The Sam is the uniter. Interesting. Upper, upper and lower. Well, I've heard Sam is also Shem, which is kind of like the Hebrew name, too. So it depends on whether it's reformed Egyptian or reformed Hebrew. Yeah. Now, here's the funny thing. If it's Egyptian, I mean, which is kind of what the Book of Mormon would lead us to expect or not be a shock. It's not Assyrian, right? Sure. Or Sumerian or something like that. But uh, it sounds very American, Sam, but it ends up being an Egyptian word that has been used in the name Sam Tawi, uniter. We know virtually nothing about Sam in the Book of Mormon. The -hmm. only thing really that we know about Sam is in this one verse, and it's a chiasmus. And what we find out is that the focal point of the chiasmus is that Sam's seed shall be numbered with Nephi's seed which it isn't a huge stretch to see that is that Sam's seed shall be united with Nephi seed. And if so, there's potentially a play on words going on here with an obviously intentional chiastic structure, putting as the focal point numbered in relation to Sam's seed. And they share the same number. I mean, if they're the same tribe, they occupy the same number. Sorry. By that you mean they're, they're united into one. Yeah. One tribe, yeah. yes. 
to but make if, it but if you were to, to count them you would count them together and they would be one number yes. in a series yes but there's still two parts to the chiasmus two parts <laughs> yeah the upper and lower right and i wish so I, see it's two in one yeah. Yeah. If it, hey, duality Karen. to unity. I'm I'm convinced I'm going to church Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> well, I probably won't see you there. So okay. Um getting back to and this is just a further uh anecdotal kind of evidence, uh coming from another culture and one that I know very little about. But uh, as I when as a young man recently graduated from BYU, I visited um, Istanbul and went to the Grand Bazaar. And several times I was uh, given the same little presentation by the person running the shop who would show me some, uh, you know, beautiful piece of workmanship. They would look at this box decorated box or a beautiful persian rug and they would point to this and they say oh here here's an imperfection and they they must have done this because they were accustomed to dealing with americans who would buy something notice that it had an imperfection and that person would promptly bring back whatever it is and complain about it you sold me this thing and it's it's actually imperfect. It's flawed, but they would say, "No, this is this is imperfect deliberately because only God makes something that's perfect." And I thought, well, you know, that's that's a very interesting idea that if in in attempting to create something perfect, if you if you aim at perfection, one might think of it almost as a as an act of sacrilege that you were attempting to emulate deity but you could also um turn that around and, and imagine that uh you're playing with this boundary between imperfection and perfection and highlighting that boundary in showing uh you know on the one hand the mundane and its limitations it's its actual numbers, the, the facticity of it, as opposed to the perfection of the symbolic or geometric or alchemical. Um, and, and that might be what's happening in the manipulation of number this way. I'm sorry that I've become so obsessed with this, but it seems to me that you've really landed on something very significant here. Um, I find it interesting that it exists in the Bible, but uh, what really interests me is um, how, uh, you know, and I'm approaching this from a certain perspective, how, you know, Joseph Smith, either through inspiration, the Nephites, or just Joseph Smith as an author, if you take, if one takes that viewpoint, how is it that it, in you know the book of mormon is responding to this tradition uh and is it doing something uh different more deliberate something that as like nolan is digging into and i know others not just nolan but nolan's a, a convenient example he's talked about it here that you know nolan was talking about this 
alchemical tradition and what it's brought to the table. Um, I would love to see a lot more work done on this uh, because it, it seems to me to be pregnant with possibilities for d- a deeper understanding of what's going on with the Book of Mormon. And just to go on a bit further, um, I think this is one of the reasons why I am so adamant about doing this kind of exercise, having these discussions. And I thank you, RFM, for bringing this topic to us because um, it's easy, I think, to underestimate the Book of Mormon. Um, and and, and if people both within the LDS tradition, the, re- the larger restoration tradition, and outside of it, including former LDS people or former restoration members, um, th- there's a tendency to say, oh, well, you know, the Book of Mormon, blah. <laughs> and there are many ways that you can underestimate what's going on with the Book of Mormon, um, whether it's just uh, the simple idea that this was, you know, translated uh, by the gift and power of God. If you just reduce your understanding of what's going on to the Book of Mormon to that kind of pat description or explanation. But on the other hand, to say, oh, well, Joseph Smith just wrote that. It's not significant. What we're doing here, what I, I hope people see, is that regardless of how you feel personally about the text and and what you choose to see it as in your life, you know, is it spiritually significant or not? It is an object that is worthy of study that, that there's quite a lot going on here. You've illustrated that to me yet again uh, tonight, RFM. And I want to thank you for that. Um, are are there any other questions or may I make that, a quick comment yeah, that dovetails yeah. with your idea? Yeah, thank uh, you. The way you put this reminded me of the Navajo sand paintings. They deliberately now they're so good that they can make a perfect painting, but they always refuse to do so. And they say, because that will tap into the supernatural. Now, true, I, I, I get it. I understand. I'm completely with every one of you that says, that's just superstitious nonsense. Not to them. So they are deliberate. And they are the Lamanites, according to Spencer W. Kimball. We've got their DNA now. So <laughs> with their sand paintings, deliberately building a, a manipulation, I'll put it to either make them imperfect or they leave out a specific part or whatever, perhaps this idea of manipulating reality into a more perfect symbolic reality to what symbolize the spiritual higher plane, so to speak, than the mundane physical plane, something to that effect, but imperfection, manipulation of art with religious meaning, you know, we have this book, Chuck Full, of religious meaning. Maybe that, you know, our scientific-based culture today just simply throws the skepticism into it and says, 
<laughs> like you're noting, right? But maybe there's more to it. Who knows? It, it, I, I agree, though. Thanks, RFM. This You always bring something excellent to the table. I'm not supposed to tell you that. It'll swell your fat head. But I love how you just present everything you present. So it's well, thank very you. interesting. Yeah. yeah. Praise from Caesar. <laughs> and seriously, I think that there's a window here. I think there's a window in the wall. I'm not exactly sure what it gives us a view on, but I think it gives us a view on something. And maybe we got a window here we can look through. By the way, there was one other thing. Can I just add this? Because I think this is fascinating. This is something that Branch Gardner discovered. And I didn't know about till I was researching for the paper, but this is another pattern of three groups of seven in the Book of Mormon. It's in fourth Nephi. And this is what he says about it. By the way, it's the seven years are gaps in the text. So I'll just read what he wrote. This repeating, okay, Brent Gardner has noted a threefold repetition of a seven year gap of time in fourth Nephi verses six and 14. This is what he says. Uh, this repeating pattern occurs three times in 4th Nephi and never anywhere else in the Book of Mormon. The triple repetition confirms that it is not random information and not associated with Mormon's source. Mormon is telling us something. He has moved from real time into symbolic time or from history into story. The repetition of seven-year gaps, and he gives the verses, which are 42 to 49, 52 to 59 and 72 to 79. By the way, those aren't the verses. Those are the seven-year gaps that are reflected in the text. My, my mistake. The repetition of seven-year gaps suggests that he is deliberately using the spacing symbolically, likely to mark a week of years. But he definitely does show that the Book of Mormon text in 4th Nephi verses 6 through 14 does give us three seven-year gaps in the way that it is recorded. And I think that if I, um, geez, I think if I looked it up here, I could make it even more clear as to the way it is recorded. But this is how it's reflected in the text, just so you know. First, uh, it's verse 6. That covers the first two times, and verse 14 covers the third time. But verse 6 says, And thus did the 30 and 8th year pass away, and also the 30 and 9th, and 40 and 1st and the 40 and second. So it goes up to the 42nd, right? It does skip 40, it appears, but it goes up to the 40 and second. And then it says, yay, even until 40 and nine years had passed away. So there's that seven year gap between the 42nd year and the 49 years had passed away. And then it goes on in the same verse and does the exact same thing with the next decade. And also the 50 and first and the 50 and second, yay, and even until 50 and nine years, had passed away. So there's your second seven-year gap. And they get the third one, which apparently, according to Brant Gardner, and he does know his Book of Mormon, doesn't occur anywhere else in the Book of Mormon. In verse 14, you get the third one. Uh, and it came to pass that the 70 and first year passed away, and also the 70 and second year, yea, and in fine, till the 70 and ninth year had passed away. Yeah, and if I could throw in there, Don, something we had talked about many years ago, but um, it didn't quite work out well enough or it didn't make enough sense to include in the paper. But that 400 years mm -hmm. after Jesus, um, I think that that's important in the sense of Lehi's 600-year prophecy. 
mm-hmm. because he talks. It's Lehi, I think. Maybe it's Nephi. Who the heck knows? But it's about, Lehi. Yeah. Okay, six hundred years from until Jesus comes from the time we left Jerusalem. Well, we look at actual history and we realize, wait a second, they didn't leave Jerusalem in six hundred BCE. They left it on the eve of the Babylonian captivity, which is probably around five eighty seven. And so, a lot of times, yeah. Okay. Um, and what was the exact date? I want to know. No, seriously. Seriously. December 14th on a night just like tonight. 6 a.m. Okay. Okay. But, but people look at that and they say, well, obviously the Book of Mormon is wrong because they're talking about 600 years when it was like 600 minus 13. It is possible that that standing alone looks odd. But when you look at the other half of the 400 years after Jesus, that maybe they were envisioning the entire chronology of the Nephites as being 1,000 years. Mm-hmm. And that's why the 600 years before. I think, Don, that I, we looked at that and we couldn't make it fit because, oh, sorry, this is going off the top of my head, mm-hmm. that the 400 years, I mean, the 600 years counts from when they leave Jerusalem down to Jesus getting born, right? But the mm-hmm. 400 years is counted not from when Jesus was born, but from when he visited them. No, it's counted from when he's born. Is yeah. it really? Yeah. Well, that sounds like a much better idea. I'm surprised that uh, it wasn't so, so it does. Yeah, it does add up to 1,000. Yeah. But it's not a seven. That's why. This is a thousand right. thing. So it's possible <laughs> that once again, we have another example of superimposing this religiously significant or symbolically significant of a thousand years yeah. onto an actual history, which is right. maybe start 587 or 586, if Carrie's correct about the Babylonian captivity, BCE to... Well, I think maybe what is it four four hundred twenty one or three hundred something? Yeah, no, it's four twenty one or something. Four twenty one, yeah, maybe four. It's four twenty one when he finally gets around to burying the plates, though. I can't remember. Yeah, I think so. And we know that there's a long time. There had to be a long time between the destruction of the Nephites and and Moroni burying the plates because he had to make that that very difficult trip from Mesoamerica all the way up to New York via Manti. And you know how it is getting across the border, right? Yes. He probably got detained for years. If you guys knew your stuff, you would realize he only had to go three miles to the Mesoamerican Hill, Camorra. (laughs) (laughs) And then that got teleported to New York. The entire hill is what actually happened. (laughs) See, when you're stomped, ask RFM and Don. I'm telling you. <laughs> I know. Well, it is interestingly, yeah, since since Moroni buries the plates in 421, I'd never thought about any possible significance of the year. Um, but, and, and this is a little hokey in a way because the total isn't divisible by seven, but like it's adding, it's taking yep, four, two, 400 one. and four it's plus adding two plus one. Three, three sevens to it, which we've oh, already seen yeah. three sevens being significant. That's great. Yeah, it's four plus two plus one. It's four plus three sevens. It's oh. yeah, four twenty-one. That's that, great. That's how the Jews did one set of gematria. There are other ways, but that is one way they did it. All right, so that's kind of interesting. I'd like yeah. to get the Hebrew Book of Mormon and do some gematria in the Hebrew Book of Mormon. I actually saw a copy of it. It wasn't the whole Book of Mormon that was translated. No, it wasn't. H- Hannah didn't get the whole book. He got mostly first and second Nephi, which mm. would be the good juicy ones anyway, with that tree of life 
Lehigh dream. Ooh, yeah, baby. Yeah. And compare the Jamatri with Nephi's. I bet you I can find some sevens in there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I will tell you that what Don mentioned just, of course, reminded me of Stephen King. Because most things remind me either of Stephen King, Jaws, or Ghostbusters. Or Shakespeare. Oh, that's right. There is Shakespeare. The quintessence of dust. <laughs> Uh, yeah, Stephen King wrote a book. Uh, it was made into a movie with, um, oh, who was it? It was, uh, oh, Samuel Jackson and, oh, it'll come to Tim. me. John, he's got a sister who's an actor. Cusack. Oh, John Cusack. Yeah. Yeah, John Cusack. Yeah. And the name of the, it's, it's, the name is 1408 because it's after yep. this motel room, right? Yep. That uh, is haunted. Nobody can stay in it all night without dying or killing themselves. And so John Cusack is the guy who's going to stay in it. Anyway, the whole, the whole thing is just a, a gimmick because the room 1408 was created by Stephen King because you add them up and you get 13. Yeah. And that's what, what Don was saying about 421. Adding up to be seven reminded me of. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it does happen. It does, does happen. It yeah. does can happen, happen coincidentally. It can happen by design. Yes. I think here it's by design. I'm just going to guess. I'm going to throw it out there that that fourth Nephi is a cornucopia of numerological delights. Yeah. And I think the anchor to that supposition is those three groups of gaps of seven. Well, that's that's where we begin to that's thanks to Brant Gardner. But I think so much has been said here. My gosh, we are, we're going to have to have a multi authored article. So and if I somebody think the, writes this article. Can we call it a cornucopia of numerological delight? <laughs> <laughs> only only like if we phrase, <laughs> only if we submit it to the interpreter. <laughs> uh, they'll publish anything so we're in <laughs> you know i still have a paper under consideration at the interpreter and, and it will be for all time it will. <laughs> they, they wanted to publish it they wanted to publish it but they said i had to do some more research in order to show that i had what sufficiently interacted with the scholarly stuff that's already been published on it and i yeah. thought screw that i had enough of that in this paper by the way Don and I came up with, fleshed out this idea, and we have the idea, and it's dem demonstrable, I think, in the text. Yeah. But then, of course, the editor wanted me to go back and do the research about the numbers, their significance, what they mean. In other words, do all the background stuff that most people, I guess, would do in the first place. Maybe it doesn't happen that way. And I had to go to the local library and spend the day there just looking up books on numerology and coming up with stuff that everybody already knew. <laughs> you know, and that didn't increase the value of the the subject or what we were talking about anything at all. It just made it look more scholarly because then you had more footnotes and I re and I resented it. And so when the interpreter comes back to me, this is with Jeff Lindsay, comes back to me and says, hey, love your idea. Could you do some more, uh, you know, precatory crap on this? so that you can show that you're interacting with the other scholarly stuff that's already been written about it when it doesn't contribute at all to the point that I'm making and that I'm demonstrating mm -hmm. in this absolutely fantastic paper um, that they want to publish. I just said, eh, nah, no thanks. I'm not interested. <laughs> well, now, now you know the, the, the hell that is the academic life because it's always, you know, you always have reviewers who come back who say, oh, well, you didn't cite X. And so then you have to go back to the library and check out these books. 
um, they want you to fill it all in. And that's yes. what yeah. so, so, so publish with the interpreter. Why are you guys trying to publish a, with the interpreter? I don't get it. Because it's an inside joke and a diabolical scheme. <laughs> <laughs> it is absolutely diabolical. And I was surprised that like three or four months later, Jeff Lindsay comes back to me and says, Hey, have you gotten a chance to do that research? Actually, I don't think I really responded the first time. I just sort of put him off saying, yeah, I'm kind of busy right now. I'll see. And I didn't give it a second thought except they weren't going to publish it three or four months later, it comes back. Have you got a chance to do that research? Cause you know, they're on this crushing publication schedule. They are of every week, new, yes. every week, every Friday, they've got to publish something new. So. Whether they resurrect the article from the dead or <laughs> beat it out of someone, or they're going to have that without article. permission. Exactly. Without permission. <laughs> David Bachboy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So did you so did you publish your article in the BYU studies, right? Yeah. BYU, yes, BYU yeah, uh, studies yeah. did publish it back in 2014. Do, do you know why I pulled out of the article? Did I talk why? about that? Well, why? you I haven't, you. but you can reveal it if you wish. Please so, do. Um, it was actually because um like so Jack Welch was was as the editor for one thing, he was adding his own material to the paper which I didn't no. feel like we could decline, right? And he was having you add all these other things to put it into this context. What I, what I wanted to do was just deal with this is in the text itself, right? But once it starts being put too much in the context of the ancient world, then it makes it look like, for one thing, I'm claiming to know stuff about the ancient world, and I don't know jack about the ancient world. When I want to know about the ancient world, I talk to Trevor, Right. Um, so, right. um, secondly, I do too. secondly, I, I knew that some of the future things that I might publish might, um, clash with this outlook, right? I, I didn't yeah. want to, I don't, I don't want to, even though some people think of me since I've come back to the church as an apologist, it's, that's actually very far from where I'm coming from. And I didn't want to published what are what we had done in a way that suggested to the contrary right that framed me in that way uh and so that that was the reason yeah no i'm sorry that happened but it's a good experience but i like your idea of just let's see this is the issue man I, i'm not kidding it's what caused me to quit being an apologist too is why can't we let the text say what the mm -hmm. text says I right. Mean. And so you'll notice the difference between brand. By the way, thanks for sharing that, Don. I yeah. had thought. Yeah, that, thank you, Don. That's interesting. Yeah. I had much. thought. And this is one of the reasons it took so long, because it was like this joint effort. And I'm, I'm yeah. putting stuff together, throwing it out to you. And you're working on so many other projects yeah. at the same time. And I just thought you were busy elsewhere. But um, what was I going to say there? I was going to say that where is Brant Gardner? Mm -hmm. When he's talking about the three gaps of seven and fourth Nephi is talking about Mormon being the author. Right. I have tried to be a pains in my presentation tonight to not identify any author, but just talk about the author, right. whoever that may be. Obviously, if you've got a book, there's an author there somewhere. I think that much is pretty much indisputable, but I'm not trying to identify any particular author. Yeah, that's yeah, good. See, in so many respects, what we're missing is uh, it's, you did it just right, because instead of worrying about which author or who, 
that is almost distracting to what you had to say tonight. And because of the way you presented your information, we have had a wonderful exploration with other parts of the Book of Mormon that you didn't even hardly talk about. But I mean, yeah. what a blast, right? Because yeah. we're exploring the text. Let's just look at the text. Quit worrying about anything else. What does this silly text say? What does this wonderful text say? Is it interesting? Is it valuable? Is it intriguing enough that, I mean, every one of us have already said, you know, someone ought to look further into that. And we all nominated Cheryl. Oh, <laughs> uh-huh. I've got a lot of other things on my plate. I'm teasing you. I'm teasing you. I promise. How's your book coming? Numerology. By the way? Well, I would, you know, really, I would have to start at like ground zero with numerology and take 10 years to get up to speed on it so yeah that would be hard maybe it maybe it would only take seven years or maybe it would take 12 years <laughs> i love it maybe it would take 20 years but we would just say it was seven i think it would take 144 years actually <laughs> so. yes three times four yeah three times four is 12 12 times 12 times a thousand absolutely <laughs> everybody understands yeah. that to be symbolic except for the jehovah's witnesses i think yeah i don't know (laughs) Uh, well thank you guys thank you for coming i'm i'm going to um beg off now um and i must be getting close to 11 30 in your neck of the woods it is i'm gonna stop my recording thank you trevor thank Thank you you, trevor for all you do it's been a boatload of fun thank you and now the Very next nice. awesome. talk Thanks we'll have day. will Thanks be in January. We'll have Carrie and we'll nail down the date soon. All right. Fabulous. Cool. All right. Awesome. Thank I, you I, pro- all. I promise it'll be good enough to put you right to sleep. No, I have found some really wonderful stuff on the Mithras liturgy mm. and it's cool. really fascinating. I'm not kidding. Man. This is huge. It I is. promise you'll enjoy it. it. I'm looking forward, forward to it, Carrie. Yeah. All I ask is that you you do it outside in a blizzard. (laughs) That's a little backyard professor humor. Can I wear a hat? (laughs) Yes, you can wear a hat. Okay, thank you. (laughs) All right, you guys. Love y'all. Thank you. This was a blast. Thanks, RFM. Good night, everybody. Thank you so much. Thank you, RFM. That was awesome. You're welcome. Good night, everybody. Good night. night.